essentially the best and most impactful carbon tech company hasn't even been found yet. The founder is still out there, maybe in their diapers, who knows? We really need to create an ecosystem where it's collaborative and, and inclusive. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. There are two ways to foster innovation. One, find an entrepreneur and pair them with capital, aka money, and hope that their idea works out. The second is through a grand challenge coming up with an outcome and then inspiring others to innovate to achieve that outcome. The most famous of these competitions is the XPRIZE Foundation, who in April 2021 announced their largest competition ever, an Elon Musk-backed $100 million carbon removal XPRIZE competition. But this is their second climate-focused competition. The first, which took place between 2015 and 2021, was the Carbon Utilization XPRIZE. My guests today, Madison and Aporv from Carbon Upcycling Technologies, were finalists in the Carbon Utilization XPRIZE. Today's show is about grand challenges and the role they play in fostering innovation towards net zero. But first, a bit about Carbon Upcycling and our guests. Carbon Upcycling is a Carbon XPRIZE X Factor Award winner, an Emission Reductions Alberta Grand Challenge semifinalist, and a recipient of support from provincial and federal entities in Canada. In 2017, Carbon Upcycling Technologies became the youngest CO2 utilization company to commercialize a product from CO2 emissions. Aporv Sinha is the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Upcycling Technologies. He is a Forbes 30 Under 30 Energy Awardee in 2020, a Clean 50 honoree in 2021. He's an alumnus of the Energy Futures Lab, a 2016 Leading Change Delegate, a Clean 50 Emerging Leader, and has served on the Alberta Clean Tech Industrial Alliance Board of Directors. Madison Savlo is the Chief of Staff at Carbon Upcycling Technologies. She also started and leads the company's consumer brand, Oco. Madison has spoken at TEDx conferences, podcasts, including my favorite, Reversing Climate Change by Nori here in Seattle, and a member of the World Economic Forum as the Curator of Global Shapers Calgary. Most recently, Madison was listed on the 2021 Corporate Knights Top 30 Under 30 list of sustainability leaders. During the interview, Madison and Porv and I discussed their experience and lessons learned from participating in a climate-focused grand challenge. We explore their climate origin stories and how their upbringing and interests led them to work on climate in one of the largest oil-producing regions in Canada. The interview is a bit science-heavy, including carbon accounting math like negative emissions, so hang in there if that's not your cup of tea. We pick up the conversation with Porv talking about his recent fundraising trip in Europe. How was your time in Europe? Was it, I'm hoping it was for good things? Uh, most of it, yeah. I would say all of it, really. I mean, the first five weeks were um, all related to business development. Like, we're looking at a couple of projects in the UK and in Germany. And, yeah, it was pretty intense. Like, I think the first 20-odd days, I was on a train or a plane for, like, 60% of my time there. Like, 60% of the days, I was on a plane or a train. And so I wasn't sleeping in the same, same spot. Um, and just, yeah, travel was kind of bizarre to do after two and a half years of covid um, but then towards the end of it, I actually stayed an extra two and a half weeks to attend a meditation retreat in France. Uh, and that was really sweet. Like it was kind of my first real time off in like eight years. And 
I decided to spend that at a monastery doing, you know, almost nothing except meditating and meeting some really cool people from different walks of life. Yeah, uh, hopefully we'll have plenty of time to spend uh, on on your journey there. Lots of pieces that I'd love to talk about. I think we should also get everyone situated, uh, everyone being our listeners, for who you are, who Madison is, what carbon upcycling technologies, uh, what they do, how it started. I'm hoping in our time that we'll be able to cover all of those things and, um, you know, carbon upcycling technologies being a participant in an XPRIZE competition, talking about that idea as a mechanism for climate impact as well. So we've got a lot to cover. Porv is, uh, you know, not using his phone for two weeks. Madison, what is happening at Carbon Upcycling Technologies? Uh, I assume that you're the person in charge, but maybe that's not too big of an assumption. But you, you do seem to carry a, a big stick. Yeah, I know it's just absolutely crumbled. He's gone for two weeks and everything fell apart. No, um, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting, I think, not to rely constantly going back to it for, for decision making. Um, I wasn't actually the one necessarily in charge of everything. We have different projects that we're um, kind of leading within the company and things like that. So, yeah, that was um, it's been a busy two weeks as every two weeks are for us. Um, we just kind of continued on with with that work while he was away. Madison. I'd also love to hear about your kind of your climate origin story. And so like, when were you first starting to think about climate? How did you get connected to a poor and carbon upcycling technologies? And then maybe we'll start talking about the company from there. I'm born and raised in, in Calgary, which we're currently um, located in right now. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the mountains and uh, around nature and did a lot of camping growing up and even just within, you know, the, the time where I started to recognize these changes, it was, um, pretty quick changes you see in the environment or different um, rivers flowing different ways, fish not um, being as populous as they used to. And I think just being around that and being aware of um, those pretty detrimental changes in the environment that I look up to and really find a connection with, it really led my interest to be in this space. And then the other asset or other, I guess, factor within that is that this is also an oil and gas city. So innovation is pretty um, prominent here. Um, I've never been involved directly with the oil and gas sector, like never had a position at an oil and gas company, but knew that innovation would definitely play a role in, in the career that I want for myself in, align, in alliance with um, being environmentally focused as well. Um, so yeah, actually I, I joined the company kind of in a, an interesting way. So I had just come back from study abroad in Scotland and I had never not had a part-time job during university. So I was looking for just kind of a chill um, role while I finished my university degree. And then I landed an admin assistant position at Carbon Upcycling, which ended up not being an admin assistant. It was more business development and it was definitely not part-time. I used to cut class all the time to go give pitches for the company and or go take meetings. Um, yeah, my grade suffered a little bit in my last term, but it was it was worth it. And I kind of fell in love with the, the mission and what we're doing and as well as the technology so I did my last exam on a Saturday in the morning and I joined Carbon Upcycling full-time on the Monday and been with them ever since. Yeah, it's been a really exciting journey through XPRIZE and um, now also getting to start some of our working consumer products as well. You mentioned oil and gas, uh, Calgary being an oil and gas uh, community. And one of the things that I'd love to cover is this uh, basically partisan feeling around oil, the oil and gas community 
and the work that they do. We see it even at the, top, at the highest level today, right? Like with President Biden and the U.S. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not, not as familiar with Justin Trudeau's feelings about it, but I imagine it's complicated because Canada is the fourth largest oil producer, right? Um, so on one hand, like we're pushing through clean energy infrastructure. On the other hand, we're saying produce more oil and gas, right? We are, we are as a society, hugely beneficial from, uh, from that industry, although there is a need to turn it around to make it clean in the future. So um, I, one of the things, and I think we'll go here and then we'll kind of start talking about uh, the origin story of carbon upcycling and, and carbon X prize as well, is what is it like to balance that dichotomy? Uh, you know, you're, you're working to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. You're working with the oil and gas industry. I'm sure people have given you both sides of the coin and told you you're doing great work and told you you're doing that your evil work. So uh, what is it like to walk through that and any particular lessons, ideas, or frameworks for how to, how to think about it? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Um, just before this, I was talking to a group that's doing a program called Avatar. So they're kind of industry professionals that are uh, working to create new solutions. And one of the things we were talking about is um, oil and gas specifically in Alberta. And like you said, like there's there's very much a, a, a polarizing view on it, almost, you would say. Like, it seems like there's less people in the middle and more people on either side that like to yell at each other. And one of the pieces I mentioned is that um, people view Alberta specifically as an oil and gas province as they should. I mean, we're producing a lot of it, um, but they don't see necessarily the energy at whole and even these periphery industries like carbon capture utilization and, and other sectors as well, which I think is kind of a missed opportunity. And I think if Alberta would get less caught up in kind of this identity crisis of us being an oil and gas province and defending that all the time and look at where this transition is going and how to be a leader in, in energy, in innovation, hydrogen, and you've got some infrastructure that could be useful there as well. I think that would be a massive opportunity for our province and if not the country at large. So that's kind of how, how I viewed it too, like viewing this as transferable skills, particularly in the oil and gas sector as it pertains to um, trade jobs going forward into um, green opportunities for them. I think that's going to be massive because most of the solutions that we have available for net zero are going to be this hard tech and, and hardware solutions. So having the opportunity to transition to that is really important. And I think with CCUS in particular, we get, um, I don't know, we don't get like a ton of pushback, to be honest, from, from that side of things. So um, I mean, there's always some people that will make comments that we're feeding into oil and gas, but I think it's it's obviously going to be a, a portion as well of us meeting net zero goals and um, being able to leverage some of the innovation or even just the talent we have within this sector is pretty key. You, you hit on something that's actually a very kind of fundamental, I guess, paradox that we're trying to deal with, Nathan. You know, it was funny when, when Madison said that we don't get as much pushback for CCU. I, I just remembered... I'm actually on site, so our reactors are literally about 300 yards away from where I'm sitting. And I remember we had this electrical inspector from the city of Calgary come out when we were commissioning our stuff and wiring everything in. And, you know, he was in his, probably in his late 50s, early 60s. And his, his question right at the end as he was signing off is like, what, what are you guys trying to do? And we're like, well, you know, we're trying to make something out of CO2 that's useful, reduces the carbon footprint of another kind of carbon intensive material like cement. And he kind of gives me this frown look. And then he kind of waits, and 20 seconds later, he's like, you know, you could just plant trees. And he just walks <laughs> away. And, and his whole kind of thing was like, why would you build all of this? Like, what's the point? And, and I think it, it brings to me, I think, two problems that we have in our kind of battle against climate change over the next two or three decades. You know, I think about this also as like the son of someone who's been in oil and gas his whole life. You know, he's in his 
uh, 60s now. My dad's got like a year left before he retires. And uh, it was about five years ago that he's like, you know, if I were in your position, I would have done exactly what you're doing. Like I would have gone into climate change, not into oil and gas, because this isn't the way I want to remember my career. Right. But when they get to a certain point in their careers, like it's, it's a human tendency to polarize and like create heroes and villains. And I think that it's not the best thing to do. Like we're very good, even though I guess you can argue that, you know, the way we've been fighting the war in Syria or the war in the Ukraine now hasn't exactly been the best example of humans fighting wars uh, or doing the right thing. But generally speaking, we tend to be better when there's an opposing force. Like we're better at sports because we know what we're fighting against. Right. With climate change, it's a nebulous thing. It's this thing that we try to put our, our, our kind of energies around. We try to put this narrative about how evil it is, but they were like, oh, like, it doesn't actually do much. And then there's only 0.004% in the, uh, in the atmosphere. And it you know, hasn't really killed kids directly. And it's not really causing malnutrition, like, you know, locusts in, in farms or something. And so I think we're really struggling with grasping just how big that problem is and how the timescale over which we need to fight it needs to be so much faster than what got us here. You know, we, we were in a roundtable last week with a couple of federal ministers from Canada, and they struggle with it. You know, if they come from a riding in Saskatchewan or Alberta versus from Ontario, they're constantly trying to fight this battle where they're like, we still need sustainable oil and gas. And, you know, a barrel produced in Canada is more sustainable and more um, kind of privy to having the right standards than a barrel in, in Saudi or, you know, maybe other places in the world. And so the question is, how do we balance that and still move away from it in what is a responsible way as opposed to um, kind of drawing a hard line and saying, like, that needs to go away tomorrow and not really thinking through the consequences? And I'll just finish by saying that, you know, the two weeks or so out of the seven that I spent in Germany, like, I really saw the Germans grappling with that. Like, you know, we met with a couple of ministers and uh, that, that were dealing with economic trade and stuff. And, you know, one of our advisors in Germany actually worked with the German government uh, for 35 years or 27 years, sorry. And he kept bringing that up. He's like, the Germans are in such a tough spot because the reason they can keep their lights on at night is because of Russian gas. And now they're having to, you know, look back at their, in hindsight, very terrible decision to walk away from nuclear 15 years ago. And here they are trying to figure out, like, do we take, you know, gas and energy from a government that's kind of hell bent on not following international law, or do we do something uh, radical like, you know, uh, making ourselves energy insecure? And what does that mean for the ruling party and democracy and stuff? So these are very tough questions. And I think we get much further ahead if we kind of try to see the other side. And I think in a, you know, I think pretty much most of our core team has some background, like direct connection to the oil and gas industry. And that's not to say that we think oil and gas should go on forever. But what we do see is that this is a nuanced discussion that just can't, can't just be um, black and white. We love nuanced discussions on the Net Zero Life. Let it be known. Yeah, climate change is a boogie person. At the same time as a big boogie person, it, it's also broad. The IPCC report is a great example. 195 nations together, 40,000 climate scientists, right, from like all walks of life. It is a unifying enemy uh, per se, and it is so fascinating as we kind of continue to see this globalization to a specific opportunity, maybe instead of use enemy, of, of a way that we can coalesce our efforts and bring the world closer together, which is really interesting. Also, this idea of... Um, kind of the net present value of a human life, right? So if we were to cut off oil tomorrow, right, there are lots of people who would be genuinely hurt today, right? Although you could argue that 
future generations might be better off as we kind of figure out that squeeze and go from there. It's, it's not clear. Why don't we catch everyone up, talk about carbon upcycling technologies, uh, how it got founded, and maybe from there we'll go to the X Prize. I know Porv, this is, was carbon upcycling technologies was not your first startup, um, so maybe give us a little bit of background on your entrepreneurial spirit, how carbon upcycling technologies came to be. In particular, I'm wondering were there any communities that you were in that were having discuss- discussions about? And I'll define CCUS here: carbon capture, uh, utilization, and storage. So were you, you know, were there like their clubs that you're talking to, you're going to climate tech talks, your entrepreneurial spirit, clearly like you have something going on behind the scenes. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just start and I'm sure Madison will have something to say there as well. Um, So as you mentioned, Nathan, this isn't my first startup. My first startup was actually uh, founded with a friend of mine from Atlanta. I did my undergrad at Georgia Tech and in the third year of my undergrad, um, Haiti was hit by a massive earthquake. It was one of the biggest earthquakes in the, the South American continent. Uh, a few hundred thousand people died in the first, I think, two or three days of, of that earthquake, even before the aftershocks kicked in. And uh, I had just finished an internship, actually, with uh, an oil company uh, that my dad had, had kind of used up some connections with to, to get me a, a summer gig. And we had learned about coil tubing. So coil tubing is basically, think about like a steel, carbon steel hose, kind of like your garden hose that you can put on a spool, but it's way stronger. It can hold higher pressures. And uh, basically, it's used in oil and gas for uh, injection into very deep reservoirs. Uh, and versions of coil tubing are used in water as well. Uh, but primarily, it's in oil and gas because it tends to be a very specialized kind of expertise. Uh, our concept after the summer that I had working with coil tubing was to adapt that for use in humanitarian logistics. So the idea was to put a spool on the back uh, or on the bottom of a helicopter and actually, you know, when you've got a landslide or a broken bridge because of an earthquake, lay out two kilometers of, of carbon steel pipe that you can use to get fresh water out to communities. Basically, the idea was like, OK, we're not going to be in time for Haiti, but the next time something like this happens, you know, this kind of concept could be helpful. And we, you know, got some good traction. Like we, we ended up kind of setting a world record for the longest uh, stretch of pipeline uh, commission within the shortest amount of time, we actually had like a small BBC article where like we laid a kilometer of pipeline over this hill in, in the outskirts of Santiago in Chile in like eight minutes. And we actually had water delivered to, to the top of this small hill. And, you know, my, my partner, Ben, has like this video of like him creaking through that and talking about how like this could really help save lives and stuff. And we ended up doing a couple of small projects where we did have some social impact and it was great, but it quite frankly, was, was kind of a disaster in, in the sense that it didn't achieve the ultimate goal that we had, which was really to, to be able to create some impact in the first few hours after a disaster. Uh, the company is still going. We're doing some small-scale infrastructure projects in Chile. Uh, however, it's not doing what, was, what it was intended to do. And that kind of, you know, there were a couple of realizations from that in terms of, like, product market fit and really coming up with something that doesn't just make sense from a sustainable uh, sustainability standpoint and kind of a humanitarian standpoint, but also from an economic and growth standpoint. And about a year into um, kind of realizing, having this realization, uh, I started kind of looking at uh, ways to get involved in climate tech. And, you know, at the time, uh, at least in, in Calgary, Alberta, like there wasn't a huge amount of kind of, um, kind of groundswell towards this movement, but uh, kind of the, the very proximate catalyst for me was a, uh, an open innovation competition that was run by a branch of the Alberta government where they said, 
any any group or or you know even an individual if you can come up with an idea to convert carbon into valuable products put your name in we'll give you you know a little bit of seed money to get started and really the big trigger for us was um uh we got half a million dollars from that we got into the short list there was about 24 companies or groups that that got that money and uh we then took it really seriously and we said okay like if we're going to look at at moving this this better have you know potential for scale and impact and you know it's taken a few years but essentially what we've now found is that our overall premise of of coming up with a low energy process to capture carbon emissions into a solid form and then finding a use for that solid kind of uh, avatar of CO2 that is a very kind of uh promising route uh in an area or or in a in a at a time i suppose where the energy transition to green sources is not complete uh and so if we talk about you know finding green hydrogen and uh spending a lot of kind of energy to convert CO2 which is a very st- stable low energy molecule back into a fuel or a plastic or something else which is higher in in the energy spectrum that energy has to come from somewhere and the implicit carbon balance of producing that energy should not negate the carbon benefit that we produce on the back end and with mineralization processes like the ones that we're scaling we're very much in the positive on that balance like our carbon accounting really stands up even in you know what is a relatively dirty grid in alberta like we still have some coal power running still have a base natural gas load and yet we're able to stay carbon uh negative even on a cradle to gate basis and when our product goes into cement or you know plastics or consumer products as Madison has talked about we we would actually be able to be significantly carbon negative compared to you know the baseline of business as usual but the fact that we're able to create kind of a cradle to gate um process that still stays carbon negative or at the very least carbon neutral is is something that we're extremely proud of and the fact that we've now been able to scale that you know a couple of million times since we started back in 2014 and and been able to get traction in a few different industries is uh is giving us more and more kind of i guess passion and determination to to make the most of this decade that we think is going to be pretty important awesome let's get into the nitty gritty what is carbon upcycling technologies how does it work what makes it carbon negative you talked about mineralization we've interviewed uh other startups heirloom on the show who uses mineralization to sequester carbon uh this is more on the utilization piece and then again specifically on the demand side of co2 and the supply side so where is that co2 coming from uh and then how are you using it and make manufacturing it into a usable product Yeah, for sure. I can probably answer some of the I guess the intro of what we're what we're doing at Carbon Upcycling. Um essentially what we're doing is we're taking gaseous CO2 and sequestering it into inorganic solid powders. Um so there's those two feedstocks really. Um a lot of the the solid feedstocks that we're using, it's wide ranging. It ranges from industrial waste like flyash, bottomash, steel slag. Um we recognize it's most of it just as byproducts of really large industrial processes and heavy emitters. Um we also use natural pozzolans, so things like pumice and we've also gotten into recycled material like crushed glass. Um so there's a wide range of materials that we can use and that we've tested. Um and then that CO2 source, we call ourselves CO2 agnostic. Um so we've used we started off with just industrial CO2 that we could purchase, um kind of the cheapest available CO2 that we could access. Um right now we're attached to a natural gas plant. 
um, and we have used direct air, direct air capture tanks as well. Um, we recently switched. We used to use a capture unit that was on the site of um, Alberta Carbon Conversion Technology Centre, which is where the XPRIZE was held. Um, but we've recently switched to just using straight flue gas, which means that it kind of makes us a, a carbon capture technology at the same time as carbon utilization. Um, so that's kind of a full stack solution in that sense. Um, yeah, so really an interesting process in the sense that we're a single step, low energy carbon utilization technology. Um, we have these very large um, reactors is what we call them, so to speak, but we're able to process the material through that um, and simply offload it and take it to end customers from concrete we've talked a lot about and is our main focus, but also uh, work in plastics and consumer products as well. Um, really kind of one of the, the main areas that makes this really feasible is the fact that we're able to use that low-grade solid feedstock. It's really important. I think one of the things we get really wrapped up in, um, in CCUS is obviously the carbon problem, but looking at environment holistically, there's so much more we can do. Um, so using that waste material is just another facet of that, of, of looking at environment holistic, holistically and what our impact is um, and upcycling that waste material in more ways than just one. So it's not just the utilization sector. Um, yeah, that's essentially what makes our, our material work. So in terms of like what, uh, you know, the so what for this technology is if I'm running a natural gas uh, power generation, right? If I have a plant, I have a peaker plant or whatever it is, you know, we've got curtailment and solar and wind, um, we, you know, it doesn't, doesn't run all the time. We've talked about it on the show quite a bit. Does that mean that with carbon upcycling technology or some other carbon capture piece it, that, that, that natural gas power generator is going to be car zero carbon, or are we still, you know, help, help us understand that. So what of it, and then, and then let's get to the carbon accounting also for the, the, the negative piece of soaking up additional emissions and in, in, in um, soaking up emissions in addition to the actual capture uh, of the emissions released through the power generation. Yeah, I think one really interesting piece that kind of almost touches on both of the carbon um, accounting as well as uh, kind of that impact on carbon emissions coming from, um, fossil fuel burning or, or heavy emitting sectors um, is that about 80% of our impact in greenhouse gas reduction is from um, carbon intensive material abatement rather than just the carbon utilization piece. So our carbon sequestration. Um, so when we're talking about that, we're meaning as an example in the concrete sector, we're able to reduce cement use in the concrete mix. It's a very, very carbon intensive material. It's also one of the world's hardest to decarbonize um, spaces. So when we're talking about the um, overall greenhouse gas reduction of that product, um, most of that's actually coming just from that material abatement, which at the end of the day is almost more important than capturing because we're stopping that emission from happening kind of at the root cause, that emission's not even needing to be put out into the atmosphere. Um, and that's really how we're trying to address this almost like as a systemic change as well. I think one of the, the things that we've begun to realize is that, you know, the, the carbon sequestration piece, like for a power plant or for a steel plant or a cement plant, is one part of this puzzle that they were really trying to optimize against. And, you know, what we're seeing a lot is unintended consequences that people are just beginning to grapple with now. As an example, um, you know, I don't think many people would know this, but as we shut down coal power plants, the carbon intensity of cement goes higher. As we shut down and electrify blast furnaces and make them into electric arc furnaces, which will definitely reduce the carbon footprint of steel, it actually significantly increases the carbon footprint of cement in those industries or in those regions. And, and the reason for that is because 
a lot of the waste byproducts that are produced by burning coal or burning steel or um, smelting steel are actually used to make low carbon cements and not just low carbon at the point of conception, but more durable and longer lasting cements that allow their infrastructure to be replaced every 60 or 80 years as opposed to every 20 or 30 years. And so, you know, what we're seeing right now, as an example in, in Ontario, is that, you know, they have shut down all of their coal power plants. They've gone to either a mix of natural gas or getting a lot of hydro power, which is absolutely something no one's going to argue against being a positive step. Now, what that has done is they have now started importing fly ash for projects in construction from places as far away as Turkey or Indonesia or parts of Japan. And so essentially, Ontario is in some ways subsidizing coal power in developing countries where there's already a massive push uh, not to you know, go at the energy transition as fast as you can go. And I think it's, it's one of those things where not only is there a carbon problem to solve for some of these players, but also a waste management problem to solve and, and creating optionality and creating localized supply chains so that you know, the materials that these industries depend on as feedstocks, whether it be glass producers for beer bottles or you know, construction-grade glass, or cement producers for built infrastructure, or, you know, companies that are producing greener steel. Um, they all need to be able to kind of look at the entire mass and energy balance of their operation and say, okay, if we're greening this part by using an energy-efficient kind of electric uh, or a carbon-efficient electricity source, how do we overcome some of the, the back-end consequences of what's happening there? And I think that's one of the unique things that I think carbon upcycling has been able to learn uh, quite well, and I think we're we're very kind of, excited about making an impact on is that not only is there the carbon sequestration piece, which marginally reduces the carbon footprint of whatever emitting facility we, we t uh, tack onto, but on top of that, we're also solving a solid waste management problem. And I think taking that, that broader view, instead of making everything into a carbon problem, I think is, is something that we feel quite passionate about. And, you know, over the long term, it is all going to be a carbon problem because if we solve every other problem, there's still going to be excess CO2 in the atmosphere, but we're not quite there yet. And we need to close smaller loops before we get to that. And if we get into the mid-2030s and say that is our only problem, I think we've done quite well. But quite frankly, I think we've got a long ways to go uh, before we can, we can truly aspire for that. A hundred percent. And, I, you know, for people who want to do a deeper dive into the carbon accounting math, we're talking about kind of point source solutions versus avoidance. Uh, and there's lots of great resources. I know that both of you have talked about this in, in, in even more detail on, on Nori's podcast, Reversing Climate Change. Um, so people can go listen there. Nori gets into the super nitty gritty. I think we'll kind of avoid that. But I will just do a little plug for carbon accounting in general, which is the space that I play on a day to day when not doing the podcast. Uh, and it's so it's the foundation for all the innovation that's going to come through, right? We have to get the numbers right. We have to determine impact and we can't be having these guessing games of what is it, who's right, who's wrong. After the break, Madison and Porv and I jump into the world of grand challenges, including the famous XPRIZE competition. We talk about how competitions play a role in facilitating innovation, but also some of the darker sides of the competition. Plus, the ups and downs of running a startup in COVID while trying to raise money to keep the company afloat when the rest of the stock market is down 50%. All of this and more after a quick word from Climate People. Season 3 of The Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy 
through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Let's talk a bit about XPRIZE and challenges more generally. Um, Carbon upcycling technologies, as I understand it, is a a benefactor of grand challenges, no pun intended, right? Um, But they're definitely not perfect. And in line with that, I'd love to hear you know, we can go through, there, there's so much to unpack. I mean, the, the, the XPRIZE journey is five years in itself, right? And many people are probably familiar with the carbon removal XPRIZE, which Elon Musk is sponsoring, and there's $100 million on the line, um, but that's relatively new. You have already been through an XPRIZE process, right? That started in 2015 and ended in 2021. And so I'd love to hear the story, the journey there, kind of the ups and downs. And then I'm super curious to get your thoughts on this as a mechanism for creating innovation, right? Is, is coming up with a high level goal and then saying, hey, go attack it, a great way to do it. It's not the way that venture capital works, right? Venture capital is kind of the opposite where people are saying, I have a good idea, come give me money versus grand challenges or XPRIZE is saying, hey, we have money, here's an idea, figure out how to do it. And so kind of the dichotomy between the two, um, how has that led to success for you and how has it led to issues? Well, let's talk about the journey first in terms of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess I, I joined the company in 2018 in the fall. Um, so that would have been, I think, was it just after, I guess, we had been uh, selected for the finals. So that was the the big scale up. Um, but really, most of like I think that the heavy lifting other than the engineering portion um, was really it was supposed to happen just when, when COVID hit and we were moving to the Alberta Carbon Conversion Technology Center. So we had a few, uh, well, about a couple months of downtime and then we were really just at that site. Honestly, it didn't feel like we were even in a pandemic for all of us. Like there was a core team that was kind of at site all the time for that whole first year of the, the pandemic. And um, we're a little bit of a bubble in that way, which was kind of nice, but we were experiencing our own challenges and struggles to get um, this reactor built. And um, just to uh, some context, we had a reactor already constructed that was producing about two tons of material in a batch. So this was tenfold what that was for the scale up. So it was 20 tons of production in a batch. So a lot larger than what we were, were used to. We had parts coming in from all across the world. We had, I remember one of the, <laughs> one of my worst days, I guess, on site was one of the key components that was holding up our whole scale up was stuck on a tarmac in Toronto and trying to figure out uh, where it was, um, where I was, you know, moments away from getting in my car and just driving myself to, <laughs> to Ontario to go pick it up. Um, but, you know, it, it was things like that, like the procurement was was difficult and we had engineering delays that um, caused really big headaches for us. But I think overall we had some crazy highs and some really bad lows and getting through all of those um, really made us have this solid foundation for our team going forward, which is something um I look back on quite a lot. Like the, the experience through XPRIZE was like nothing else. I don't know if I would do another one, but it was like nothing else and I wouldn't change that experience. But um, well, maybe there's a couple of things I would change. But um, yeah, it was a really, really interesting space to be in. And I think your comments about how these challenges act as mechanisms for creating change and creating solutions, um, I think they definitely can. And the biggest part for 
me is with seeing ourselves at a test center and seeing a pilot of our tech technology on a commercial demonstration scale. So it's had to be something that was meaningful and really demonstrated out how the tech would work in a real life situation, um, which is really, really important. There's not enough tech centers around the world. Like one, the ACCTC that we're at right now, um, that's one of the largest operating um, commercial facilities for um, testing and piloting carbon conversion. Um, and there needs to be a lot more of them. And I think grand challenges like this could be a mechanism to spur that type of piloting. I think there is a lot of transparency that's needed and, and how these judges are, how these um, competitions are judged and how we select a, a winner. And there's so much more systemically that we need to look at for a winner of these types of prizes. But um, overall, I do think the mechanism and the idea and the thought is there. And if we can kind of create a better framework in which we're using these challenges to forget, progress meaningful innovation, they could be quite powerful. Again, like as we think through the the, the picture of, of what's happening for carbon upcycling technology and nine other finalists at this time, there's two plants where, where people are testing their technologies. There's natural gas, there's a natural gas plant and a coal plant. And so can you tell us a little bit about what is the collaboration like? Are you, are you seeing other competitors right there? Are you working together? Everyone's individual. And as we think through the actual challenge for people who are less familiar with the idea, the carbon dioxide that you're using and utilizing, because the $20 million prize is all about utilization, is that given to you? So someone has already solved the, the capture portion, uh, and then all you have to do is figure out how to weigh to turn it into a useful product? Or again, are you working through that technology as well? We talked a little bit about earlier, but I think recovering in here will be helpful. Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, I guess I'd back up and just tell you a bit of the structure of the competition at first. So yeah, there's two tracks, one in Wyoming, one in Alberta. Um, and that we were based obviously at the, the Calgary facility here at, on the back of a natural gas plant. So there was only five competitors here and five in Wyoming. We were only competing against the other four competitors here. Um, and they were wide ranging, different technologies, different products that they were ending up with and, and even different scales of their technology readiness level. So um, really quite broad, I guess, in that sense. The CO2 was provided to us. So there was a capture unit that was put in place. It's not like they, they bottled the, the CO2 up and gave it to us that way, really. It was, it was actually a demonstration of another company's carbon capture um, unit that was put at the facility. And then all the teams had access to that CO2, as well as access to flue gas if we so wanted it. So um, that was quite an interesting setup and, and how they're going forward with continuing this test center after the X Prize. They really wanted to make it a long-term thing. It wasn't just meant for this competition, but we're still there. So, uh, and there's other companies at that facility as well, and they're now making a membership program. And I think that's important to note too, because it, with these grand challenges, it's really hard for, you know, really great innovation to come out of it. And then that's kind of it, like you've been given a prize and then the you know, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, these test facilities are really important to keep going and these companies are really important to keep motivated and progressing towards their end goal of commercialization. So um, it's not just the, the end of the prize that we're aiming for. And I think that's always been our mentality going into the prize. It was never about just winning it. It was always, this is secondary and we're gonna use this as a mechanism to scale our, our technology. And I think with that in mind, that really helped us kind of frame what we were doing and then staying on progress in our in our own way and how we wanted to reach our own milestones going forward 
if you can also tell us a little bit what's happening outside of the competition that you have to do in addition to keep the company afloat, right? Because Carbon because uh, the X Prize isn't paying for you to do this. So I'd love to hear all your thoughts uh, on everything, and also as you think through opportunities to share what's happening behind the scenes, not related to the X Prize, that's allowing you to do the X Prize work. I'd love to hear some of that as well. Yeah, just my my biggest breakdown in 2021 was all grants that kept us afloat for getting through the X Prize. I was going to start with that as well. I think. Exactly to your point, Nathan. I mean, the I guess one of the drawbacks in how that particular competition was run, perhaps in hindsight, was that there wasn't a lot of support um, through the stages to actually be able to field, um, you know, like uh, the best possible demonstration that you can for your technology. So at the end of the day, I think everyone's going to agree that you know, in a in a competition like this where you're trying to simplify the complexity of a, of a challenge as big as carbon removal or, you know, carbon utilization, uh, the best group does not necessarily win everything. Um, and that's because you're, you're trying to, you know, you use the word mental model at the very beginning of the podcast. At the end of the day, the way the open innovation structure, whether it be an XPRIZE or a smaller competition, like a student pitch competition, it's also just a model of what, you know, a certain group of people have decided is the metric of how something is going to run. And I think overall, you know, for us, the only reason that we're able to make a case for kind of scaling up as aggressively, aggressively as we did, like when we started the semifinals of the XPRIZE, our biggest reactor was one kilo, uh, you know, probably just slightly less wide than my computer screen. And, uh, you know, to then make a reactor with a straight face that's going to do three tons, uh, you know, any normal engineer, like I have a chemical engineering degree, but if I had a mechanical engineering one, I think they would have taken it away from me trying to talk about a design basis or something like that. Like, you know, you look at people that have been trying to scale algae production or some of these other kind of novel biochemical processes and scaling out two to five X can create massive challenges with scale up. I mean, you know, people have talked about fisher tropes where, you know, um, producing fuels from, from syngas. People that are talking about the front end of that to create thin gas from CO2 and hydrogen or water or whatnot, you know, it takes decades to get to a thousand or three thousand X scale up. And we kind of were forced almost because we took so zealously on the challenge of the carbon XYZ put forth that we just went ahead and tried it. And uh, we could do that because our, our customers are, or our prospective customers at the time were, you know, massive cement and concrete companies for whom even if 20 or 30 tons a day of production is, is less than 1% of their daily consumption at a given site. And so uh, we, we had incentive to scale and we knew what kind of North Star we're chasing. And the Carbon X, X Prize did allow us to untap more funding from federal and provincial sources in Canada. And frankly, that's probably one of the advantages that we had as a Canadian corporation is that the uh, the government, both at the federal and provincial levels, was very actively looking at changing, you know, the view or the, the kind of common narrative of Alberta being just an energy hub. And, and they want it still to be more than that. They want it to be a CCU hub, right? And so um, it ended up kind of playing to our favor. And I think it was just the right time for us progressing as a company. I mean, if the same exact challenge was to start today, I would be 100% sure we'd win it but we would probably not compete because it would just not be very good for where we're at. Because, you know, when we started the competition to the question that you asked about carbon capture, like we thought we needed pure CO2 for what we're doing. We found out, you know, two or three months post COVID that we actually didn't need pure CO2 and we can take flue gas directly from, from a, a natural gas or a coal power or even a cement or steel kiln. Um, and so 
I guess overall the learnings there were, were great. Um, but, you know, it was an extremely stressful time. I mean, as although we were in a bubble as a team, the rest of the world was grappling with something much bigger uh, than what we're doing in the XPRIZE. And, you know, when we talk about procurement delays and having a burn rate with a set of employees where your only source of revenue is the government and they have gone into panic mode and they've stopped supporting some of these grants and, uh, you know, have become kind of quite uh, lethargic in terms of response times and, and doing some of the basic accounting work for money that's already been allocated to your projects. I mean, that was all very stressful. And, you know, it wasn't the best time when the stock market tanked 50% to go out and do a venture capital round at that time to, to raise the money that you need for a bridge round. And so it was extremely stressful. You know, the kind of time and commitment that the team showed where we were working, I think there was this, this thing we did with one of our colleagues, Peter, where I think for him and I, from July of 2020 till, I'm going to say December 1st or December 2nd, there were two days where we weren't on site. And I think less than 10 days, we weren't on site for more than, or less than 12 hours a day. Um, and it was just, you know, we were kind of the extreme end of what was the, the work schedule for all of our team. And I think to the point that Madison made earlier, I think it created this bond between the team where, you know, when we did start kind of a fundraising round later, there was a whole bunch of questions about like, oh, you guys are so young. Like, what could you possibly know about things like cement and steel that have been around for so long or carbon utilization, which is, you know, something PhD should be looking at. And uh, within four or five months of dealing with these outside funding agencies, the paradigm of how we were received as a group completely changed. The last thing I'll mention, the XPRIZE event, like, yes, there were a lot of companies and, you know, some of them were very uh, collegial and amicable and friendly there is a dark side to this as well that I wanted to point out, which won't be immediately obvious to everyone, which is that not every group that is working in this space thinks that way. Not every one of them is able to call up another co-founder or another friend who is, you know, one of the first few employees and say, wow, like that was a tough year. Like, what do you think? Like, is there a way we can help others out? Is there a way we can help each other out? Um, and there really isn't that camaraderie as much as you might expect. Like there is some cut through competition there. Um, and some of it is warranted. I mean, you want competition, but I think you also want it to be in a place where it's coming from the right place. And I would say that uh, there were definitely some interactions I can think about, and I'm sure Madison, Natalie, and a few of our other team members can think about, where it was bizarre as to how that competitive streak wasn't showing up in the way that it really needs to. And I really just hope, um, I think it was Patrick Collison at Stripe who mentioned this. He's like, he was talking about like at a podcast about how he hires people. And he's like, we just really want to hire smart, pleasant people. And I just really, really hope that, you know, as we get into making climate tech, not kind of a niche thing, but something that every college grad or even high school dropouts are looking at in the next 10 to 15 years, we really hope the people that get in are pleasant, perceptive, and, and frankly, just perseverant. Like, you know, they're, they're willing to put out the grit and they can do it with some kind of grace and class. And, and really just help each other out because this is not something carbon upcycling is going to solve alone. It's not the semifinalists or the finalists of the XPRIZE alone. Potentially the best and most impactful carbon tech company hasn't even been found yet. So, you know, the founders still out there, maybe in their diapers, who knows? And so we really need to create an ecosystem where it's uh, collaborative and, and inclusive. And I'm not sure that everyone in the space is doing that right now. And I, I hope that changes. Do you have any advice for people who are getting started on the carbon removal XPRIZE right now? And what does the future look like for carbon upcycling technologies and OCO, your consumer-facing brand? What does success look like for the two of you? 
Yeah, I guess maybe I'll jump in with just the the X Prize advice first. Um, I think for us, and I, I kind of mentioned it a bit earlier, but if you're jumping into an X Prize or applying for an X Prize, um, I would advise that there's an end goal beyond that. Like it shouldn't be to do an X Prize just to do an X Prize, but do an X Prize because you have a technology that's worth scaling and that's actually going to serve a need in society or reduce carbon emissions or you know there's, there's x prizes on pretty much every topic so i mean it could be anything but actually have a longevity beyond what an x prize can give you um i think that would be my my biggest advice but i think otherwise just from experience um it is a great experience that you probably won't get anywhere else and then by great i just mean like it's grand and overwhelming in a lot of ways it's stressful um but it's it's well worth it to go through some sort of a challenge or uh, a fast scale up in that way. You, you learn a crazy amount about your technology, what it can do and your scalability, your business model, all of that, as well as yourself and your team. So I think that's something that I would just advise on that front. With regards to where we want to be as carbon upcycling, we need to make sure that we embed carbon into every part of the lived life. I mean, every society, you know, like there are plastics out there that are used by small villages with no more than 100 people. And, you know, if you think about electricity and like some of these ubiquitous things we take for granted in, in modern life, there are parts of, you know, indigenous tribes in the very north of Canada that are being affected by parts of the Industrial Revolution that weren't touched even as of 30 or 40 years ago, right? And, and we want that to be the case with this carbon embedded and carbon utilization piece where the work that carbon uh, upcycling is doing now hopefully in the 2030s is affecting life in a positive way in, in all different kind of parts of the world. And I think we have a very grand ambition and uh, we feel very confident that we've got the team to build around to, to actually uh, execute on that. Yeah, I think with OCO, it's it, well, very much aligned with that, obviously, part of the, the live life and having um, CO2 embedded within all factors. And that includes consumer goods and the materials that are around us every day that we're using. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that we started doing consumer goods in the first place was um, we started doing them in 2019 and they were very rudimentary, like they were very DIY, just like small coasters made of our concrete material. Um, but it was just to show people actually what this material is in a tangible sense and give them um, an idea of of what it is CCU ends up being. Um, because at the time, really, people weren't talking about it quite as much as they are now in the news and including it in their decarbonization plans. Um, but even still now, there's a lot of de demystifying that needs to happen within this space. And the consumer acceptance is going to be a really huge piece of that, um, whether it's in the buildings or whether it's in our clothing, um, even in our food now. Like we're, we're seeing some carbon utilization companies doing food products. So I, I think just going forward, that's, that's really the goal of Oakland where that fits in is that consumer awareness and the, the power for consumers to actually purchase goods that are made with better materials or made with CO2 um, where they didn't have the option to previously. Uh, and that's really where we're trying to fit in as a component of being um, one of the, the top carbon tech companies in the world um, by the end of this decade. People don't freak out. Um, you know, CO2 in food is very normal, uh, aka soda or carbonated water. Um, and again, also for people, OCO is the consumer-facing brand uh, of carbon upcycling technologies, which is right. Uh, you guys should explain it better than me. But utilizing so CCU, carbon capture and utilization, utilizing carbon, carbon, and then implementing it into our everyday life. Um, Apoor, if you're talking about, you know, we have this like large vision. If you had to boil down the impact into two or three numbers. What would that impact look like? 
I would say the one number that obviously comes to mind is that, you know, we, we are emitting about 34 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. You know, about 15% of that, or if you take glass, steel, and cement as kind of the three industries where we're making some tangible headway, they make up about 15 to 20% of that, uh, given, you know, how things are in a certain year. Um, we believe, and, and we have kind of technical validation on our results to say that we can meaningfully reduce those emissions um, by, um, like, if we can take that 15% of the pie, let's say, we could potentially reduce that 15% number down to close to 10% and lower, even just with the minimum viable product that we've been able to prove. So, you know, one thing that I would look at as a metric is, you know, 15% of 34 billion is actually a pretty big chunk. Um, and if you're taking 5% of that 34 billion out, that's almost two gigatons that you're taking out of the, the balance sheet. And not only are you taking it out, you're actually doing that with kind of financially lucrative ways where the supply chain is, is driven by, by unit economics that are favorable. And um, you, you're essentially allowing it to be not just environmentally sustainable, but economically sustainable. A lot of the work around direct air capture, you know, there was the announcement just earlier today about this massive equity round that Climework raised. And it's absolutely where things need to go because a lot of this stuff isn't going to be financeable by current metrics unless the price of carbon uh, goes up to like, you know, what we're seeing with the European uh, trading system, with the ETS system, where it's at 90 odd euros a ton. In the, in the UK, it's at like 85, 90 British pounds a ton, I think. Those kind of things really do change things. And when I think about kind of where we play a part over this eight years, I really see us as being maybe the, the leading edge of, you know, this host of carbon utilization companies. Like we're in the space where CCU is going to be kind of the leading edge as a whole to incentivize people to take carbon capture and storage more seriously, to take direct air capture more seriously and, and take geological storage more seriously and, and be able to kind of allow people to become more familiar with this concept and thereby kind of move away from you know, the system that we have right now where this negative externality remains uh, kind of unpriced in the market. of Madison, incredible conversation. I am feeling so inspired through the screen about the work that you're doing. Uh, I hope that you continue to have amazing success. If you find any other grand challenges to participate in, definitely let me know because I want to hear about it uh, and best of luck. Thank you so much for having us, Nathan. Thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks again to Madison and Apoor for joining us today. You can connect with them on LinkedIn or follow Madison on Twitter at Madison Savlow. That's S-A-V-I-L-O-W. Or you can follow Carbon Upcycling themselves at Carbon Upcycling. You can get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at The Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at The Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.